And what I want to talk about with you on the second stream is just what, if we can think in a practical terms for a minute, uh, what it would look like to have the kind of international socialist politics that would be necessary to truly intervene in a moment like this one. Um, and, and, and what do you think we should be building um, along those lines? Um, and so that's what we'll talk about in, for patrons. For the inside vanguardist cell <laughs> that, <laughs> that I'm creating. All right. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a sublation media podcast. Hi, <laughs> Ron. I and like Ursula. your uh, introduction. <laughs> yeah, welcome to uh, the Twitch stream that we're on now. Um, we uh, <clears throat> are also on YouTube and we do an audio podcast. You've been on uh, the Sublation Media YouTube channel before. And uh, Ron and Ursula, you're both members of the uh, News and Letters uh, organization, which is a Marxist humanist uh, organization. And I want to get you to, to start with just by describing what that is. And while you do that, I'm going to tweet out that we're streaming and people who want to watch us can come and, and join us. But what, what is Marxist humanism? And, and I guess maybe I'll ask along with that, who is Raya doing Skaya? who is uh, the founder of, of News and Letters. Um, I guess I'll start. Marxist humanism for me is the continuation of philosophy of liberation. Marxism is philosophy of liberation or it's nothing. It's not an analysis of capitalism. It's not any uh, uh, economic um, um, discussion it really is about what is freedom and what would it take to make break from capitalism that will actually work. Um, Raya Dunayevskaya is a revolutionary from probably the time she first breathed. Um, she was a witness to the Russian revolution, mostly Russian counter-revolution actually, but um, grew up in Chicago um, at the time, the only opposition to Stalin was Trotsky. She joined Trotsky in Mexico and broke with him when he continued to defend uh, Stalin after Stalin made a pact with Hitler. She mm. said, you cannot possibly support um, <clears throat> that. Mm. It's not a degenerate state anymore. She went on to make an original analysis of Russia as a state capitalist society mm -hmm. um, and eventually um, founded her own organization, which she called News and Letters. And um, she uh, died in 1987. And we have been attempting to be a continuators of that philosophy. Mm -hmm. So it does, uh, philosophy doesn't exist as an academic uh, uh, discipline only. It exists in the actual lives of actual people. And what mm -hmm. we're trying to do is give voice to that um, realm of ideas, specifically the idea of freedom that actually exists in people's lives, but usually doesn't get articulated as that. Mm -hmm. And, yes, great. I, I follow up question is um, this is just based on my you know own curiosity here. Having actually having a history with Marxist humanism um, and never quite figuring out uh, this question while I was involved with it. I, I'm and and also because I'm uh, frequently talking to um, another Trotskyist organization, not the 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 people from the Platypus Affiliated Society. 
uh, and yesterday, the Chris Catron, one of the founders, told me that he was absolutely a dedicated Leninist. So I, I'm curious to know to what degree Raya Dunyaskaya should be thought of as a Leninist, and uh, and what the news and letters relationship is with Leninism and maybe the question of the party. Um, and then I'll then we can move on to the current events and your recent article, uh, which is called uh, Putin's, this is Ron's article, Putin's brutal war in Ukraine puts the future of humanity in doubt. And that is absolutely true. Um, but yeah, what, what about Leninism? Well, it, the short answer is we're not Leninists. Yeah. <laughs> right. But the long answer is a much more complicated Lenin was really helpful to Donovskaya at the end of the 1940s and the early 1950s in opening up the world of Hegel. No one had uh, seriously gone into his uh, philosophic notebooks. Part of that was Lenin's own fault. But it opened up a different perspective on the relationship between Marx and Hegel that Lenin went to find and reorganize himself and the great contributions that he did make, the great breakthroughs that he did make in the Russian Revolution that were unique to him and not to Trotsky and not to uh, especially Stalin or Bukharin, (laughs) that those that posture opened up the world of Hegel in a way that she uh, ran with it and took and went into Hegel directly and create and created her own continuity and discontinuity with Lenin through Hegel mm-hmm. and, and also a continuity and just with Marx that uh, had been uh, uh, went beyond the, the way uh, Lenin postured it, but she had a great deal of, um, uh, owed, felt she owed a great deal to Lenin in her own development. Where, where, if you were to look for direct people who might be curious about this to really get into the weeds on the question of Lenin's Hegelianism versus Ryan Doyaskaya's Hegelianism and how they're interrelated and how they might differ, um, is there a book that Ryan Doyaskaya wrote uh, specifically on he- well, Hegel uh, that might address that? Well, actually, uh, yeah, Philosophy and Revolution, she has a whole chapter, uh, she has a whole section on why Hegel, why now. It starts with her own posture vis-a-vis Hegel, and chapter two is on Marx, and his posture vis-a-vis Hegel, and chapter three is on Lenin. And she has very little criticism there, uh, mostly on Lenin's philosophic ambivalence. Um, And it's much but that becomes uh, much more developed in her later work, especially uh, a work on uh, women's liberation, Rosa Luxemburg, Rosa Luxemburg, women's liberation and Marxist philosophy of revolution, mm-hmm. where she uh, puts Lenin's uh, squarely in the realm of post-Marx Marxism, which she thought was a pejorative when it came to organization. Mm-hmm. And that he, uh, he developed a lot on the, on con- making concrete Hegel's philosophy dialectic for revolution, but when it came to organization, he um, he didn't. You know, he stuck with the old. He stuck with the, the party and the uh, small thin layer of Bolsheviks, and um, she goes into that somewhat. She, she, if you wanted a uh, Kind of uh, a, a short version of that. One of the last points she makes that are, is so poignant is she goes into how important critique of the Gotha program was for state and revolution. And but he, Lenin at the same time doesn't say a word about organization, and yet you know that was Marx's most directly organizational document. Okay. Um, thanks for that. Let's let's jump into your article on <clears throat> the U- Ukraine. Um, and you know, you, to me, as I read this article, it seemed to me that the the primary stance that you were taking is that this this should be read as a critique of what uh, might be called 
the anti-imperialist left, although that's perhaps um, uh, more more charitable, perhaps, than it ought to be, because there's more forms of anti-imperialism than just the one that are, that is our that you articulate uh, and criticize here. The the idea that Putin uh, actions could be interpreted as a, a, a way of breaking with the hegemonic imperial uh, order from the United States and setting up a multipolar world <clears throat> and that we should support uh, the challenges to U.S. imperialism on that basis. That, that's a, that, that's a, an anti-imperialist position on the left in the United States and I think around the world um, and, and that you're taking issue with uh, in, in this piece. Um, which I have also taken issue with, uh, but on on my through interviews. Um, but what what I would want to ask you though is whether or not there's a danger in ignoring some truths that come from that anti-imperialist position, uh, even as we critique them. I mean, because for instance, you said that Vladimir Putin's invasion of ukraine was totally unprovoked and i at the very big at the very start and i feel as though that's that's not accurate it, um that there was a provocation the, the continued uh reluctance from the biden administration and previous administrations to make it clear whether or not ukraine would be a nato uh nation uh to the degree to which uh the United States was arming Ukraine before uh, the invasion um, and the feeling that NATO was pressing up against the border of Russia and um, was challenging uh, Russian uh, power in that region, not just military power, but also in terms of uh, mobility and access to trade routes and and so on, that, that 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 all those things amount to a provocation, whether or not that that, that that provocation doesn't justify what was an illegal invasion, but it nonetheless it happened, right? So if I can uh, jump in just for a second, I know I That's didn't write the lead, but I do want to um, weigh in on this um, question of campism. Somehow yeah. there is U.S., there is Russia, and the two have spheres of interest and interest and entirety of global politics is viewed through the lens of uh, competition between superpowers. The mm -hmm. it, it, uh, that's, that's how reality presents itself to um, the kind of imperialist point of view that you're speaking about. And the reason I um, strongly object to limiting our view to this particular focus is that Putin's first enemy is not NATO or United States or anyone else outside of Russia. His main enemy is inability to uh, contain the dissatisfaction within Russia. It is Russians, Russians' dissatisfaction with their lives, which are not free, that is Putin's enemy. Putin is has been turning to external wars as a means of uh, 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 suppressing dissent within. And this is true of every ruler in every age. It's, it's across... Ages, it's across political divides. It's not NATO that's threatening Putin. It's his own people. And he needs this distraction as he needed the war in Chechnya when he came to power, as he uh, witnessed in Syria supporting murderous Assad. Um, all of those are his way of controlling his own population. So Putin's enemy is not NATO, although NATO, of course, can cause damage. I'm not trying to, to say that mm -hmm. NATO is faultless. Right. But Putin's real enemy is dissent within Russia. That's who he is fighting. 
and the the posture that I take and uh, and I think uh, is well grounded in uh, the Leninist left. If you follow Lenin, is that peoples everywhere have a right to their own self national self determination and the whatever whatever one thinks of uh, uh, what's going on in Ukraine the russian had russia had was not threatened by ukraine at all and they are the ones who were telling the world in my view that gee you don't have to fall into this abyss of russian totalitarianism and russia russia's uh equating the very word Ukraine with Nazi, the very the, the, the need to ver- erase the very idea of Ukraine, which is an idea that's multinational, that's Jewish, that's Russian, that's uh, multilingual, a country that uh, has its own national self-identity that never wanted to uh, be a part of, uh, of Russia directly. And it was always Lenin's principle that if if these nations want to go their own way, they have an absolute right to. But that principle of national self-determination, especially at this moment, to me, is has become a, a, a beacon that you don't have to fall into this narrow nationalism and fascism and uh, uh, the, the, the universal um, devolvement of capitalism into those forms. And if anything, it, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't NATO that rushed to uh, their defense. Was the if anything, themselves. they they were telling uh, Zelensky, "Get out! You don't have a chance." And they everyone expected the Russian army was going to come in and uh, mm-hmm. do a quick work of wiping this thing up. It's only after after they saw the absolute near 100% unity of the Ukrainian people, Russian, Jews, and uh, Ukrainians, Mm. organizing themselves in such creative manners and all manners of life and distribution of, of, of things and medical care and uh, just putting up such a deep, deep resistance suddenly he said, well, at all the demonstrations all over the world, uh, support Ukraine's. And suddenly, some of these uh, countries got a spine and said, mm-hmm. we're going to send them some, some help. To, uh, and it, it, it's always been creeping in. The more the resistance deepens, the more the help came in. And it's true that NATO is doing that for its own, own reason, NATO as the leaders. But they're they're not the, they weren't the leaders in this. They're the followers. The Germans, who would have thought that they would uh, even consider cutting off the oil? <clears throat> and you think they were they were motivated to do that because of popular pressure, <clears throat> not pressure from the United States? Uh, I think yeah, I think it is. I think it's so. Uh, uh, Putin is such an uh, international pariah. He only got a couple countries to vote with him, like Iran and uh, Syria and North Korea, I think. <laughs> but, you know, the people, they either abstained or uh, or they uh, voted overwhelmingly that this cannot be. And it wasn't, I don't think that reflected, it's not the, the nations or the leaders, it reflected that this was such a, um, a horror that was being visited on Ukrainian people that and their resistance they're telling the world that we don't have to go in this direction we in this case being the world doesn't have to go in the direction of this fall into fascism I mean our country can fall into this uh, stuff stuff too the the right in our country got a lot more the ultra-right fascist right the neo-fascist uh, you know that supported uh, Trump were huge, and you know the fascists and uh, they had an election in Ukraine. They got about two percent. There are some Nazis in Ukraine, <laughs> but, but you know they're not like it's not like here. 
Well, th- let's let's. I want to go back to something that Ursula said because uh, the, we can. The the difficulty with having a conversation about this is, um, for me, is keeping track of all the facts on the ground, and yeah. I, sometimes I need to, you know, go slowly through those facts on the ground. But the 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 one question I that came to mind uh, as Ursula spoke about Putin's primary enemies being the, his own people, I believe that that is the case um but it the question is the character of that threat from from my perspective because well just being a u.s citizen and seeing the way uh people in the united the dissatisfaction in the united states organizes itself and is organized politically um the, the way in which leaders are threatened politi- uh, politically and, and in other ways from, you know, the mass of society, civil society. Um, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's not clear to me that when, for instance, when the uprisings happened in 2020 in response to the police violence in the United States, that the threat to the Trump administration Rep- represented a, a, a that, that that as that was organized into a threat against the Trump administration, that it also was organized into something that could truly liberate the people, so that their interests could be finally addressed. That what it seemed to me to happen in that instance was that the 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 power of the people was diffuse and unorganized and chaotic uh, in the streets and that it was it to the extent that it did something politically it may have helped the Democratic Party but it didn't help the people organize themselves into a real political threat um, the same is true you know in Canada when the truckers organized against the vaccine mandate and against state power there that clearly, while the dissatisfaction was real, um, the way in which it was organized was in the in ultimately in favor of the conservatives in Canada, um, and there was the threat to Trudeau didn't represent a threat from some new force, political force for socialism. So I just wonder, without knowing, to what degree can is there actually a living socialist uh, political force that is organizing the people's misery into? Uh, and dissatisfaction into uh, uh, a threat that is more than a threat to the power of this particular elite, just to Putin, but to the entire order. Um, that's my question. That's sort of rhetorical, but it's also not because I don't know um, uh, the, all the facts on the ground regarding Russian dissonance. Well, that, that's the question that actually is very much on the agenda. Everyone, right and left, knows that the current state of affairs cannot continue. It's not stable. It's driving us over the edge. So what, when it falls apart, how it falls apart, what's going to replace it? There is a great deal, especially from the conservatives, saying, okay, we want to go back to for Trump, make America great again, for Putin, reestablish Tsarist Empire, for Erdogan, reestablish the Ottoman Empire, look back and try to regain the glory of whatever was in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, some Marxists are not too far behind. Let's get the primitive communism or something. (laughs) <laughs> I don't put that in the same category. But yeah. Well, it, 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 yeah. you can't, and that that's, for, for me, this is what Marx has missed, is saying you cannot look to the past. We have to learn from the present about how to overcome it and what comes next. How is that going to be different? It can't be just that, okay, the war is coming. It's going to be, um, bloody, and I'm going to get my gun so I can defend myself and my family. That's what the right offers. And it's mm-hmm. compelling because the world is falling apart. 
So mm. I, I fully understand why people are saying defense of my family comes first. But defense of my family at the cost of throwing away lives of many other families, that's not okay. That's not acceptable. So it is a much harder challenge to take up what is post-capitalism. If we have a revolution, what will be different? And it can't be just that if you put me in power, I will distribute things more equitably. Because that has been tried several times in the last century and has proven not to be adequate, not to work. This is mm -hmm. Russian revolution and every other revolution that happened since. Mm -hmm. So what will be different? What kind of society will have learned from this human development through capitalism to get to post-capitalism? What does post-capitalism mean? That's the question that's on the agenda. That's what I hear in the question that you're asking is where mm -hmm. is this organizing idea that can help people um, develop into a sense of a we that is not me and my family, but we as the whole human family. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think as we look at the situation in Ukraine, one of the tricks is going to be to try to be internationalist and to create a we that truly does cross boundaries between not only the working class people in the United States and and Ukraine, but also between the working class in Ukraine and Russia and working class in the United States and Russia and Russia and so on, like finding a common political task in this moment without uh, uh, being shunted off into a national interests. Um, and it's difficult to say that uh, right now because part of, I think it's at least there's an argument to be made that it's in the interest of the U.S. working class and the Russian working class for the Ukraine working class to have their nation, to have national sovereignty, to be able to be empowered to develop a, a bourgeois state in that region, you know, to because, you know, it, as long as things are run and, you know, by oligarchs and totally corruptly and without any kind of democratic representation, the chances for a working class politics to develop in Ukraine, in Ukraine is minimal. So there's, at least there's that argument uh, in support of uh, the Ukrainian uh, resistance. And, and just from the point of view of the totality, not just from the point of view of the humanitarian, you know, the outrage and the moral outrage that goes into it as well. But, but um, I, I, worry right now that by continuing to that Biden's call for regime change in Russia, the, the call to get rid of Putin might, might be uh, helped along by people who are uh, taking the stance that you're taking in this article about Putin's brutal war, that there are things that are happening uh, that are being perpetrated by the U.S. state, by NATO, by Europe, which ought to concern all working class people, the power in which they're exercising over the banks to turn the financial sector into a weapon against the people in Russia. Um, we, might, we might want to counter that. We may, I think what's in the best interest of everyone is a peaceful negotiated settlement of the conflict rather than a continuation of a long-term resistance and the spilling out of, over years of this conflict. Uh, because just as the uh, Ukrainian, uh, just as Russia and Putin rely on the con construction of outside uh, enemies in order to squelch internal dissent, the same is true for us here. Um, so uh, how do we, do you think, navigate the, the need to stand up for the more progressive elements in that region to defend the Ukrainians uh, right to self-determination and even to support uh, the seemingly more progressive Zelensky as opposed to Putin, but without falling in lockstep with the Biden administration 
and a United States government that has had a long-standing imperial ambition to just be able to control who's in charge around the world and who will create utter chaos in, in the interest of holding on to their power. Well, the first thing we could say is that the, the invasion if uh, really helped the imperial ambitions of the U.S. NATO was was indeed falling apart. NATO was was not a, a unified system. The Germans and the and uh, the French and different uh, countries were more than willing to deal with Putin and to keep providing him with uh, all the econ economic um, interchanges that he needed to keep his regime going. And NATO is now, you know, not only is it uh, unified, the countries that never dreamed of participating in something like this, like the Swiss, the Swedes, Finland, now want to join NATO. And it's... It, it, None of this had to do with um, uh, that these countries uh, uh, saw their interest in that direction before, but now they see that uh, that the, that they have to be a, a part of this um, this block. And so that's the first thing. It wasn't it wasn't NATO that uh, that got together and suddenly it became this counterforce. It was Putin who created that counterforce because he, this behavior is so outrageous and so um, uh, part of the historic memory of, of what Russian tanks coming in and crushing a population represent. And mm. I think what, the, the best way to think about it is that this is a global stage of state capitalism that is on the road to total destruction. In other words, what's the form it's taking in the, in the U.S.? This, the, the one thing that united the whole uh, uh, gamut of bourgeois politicians was the military budget. You know, they had a lot of fight about this and that. And the other thing, anything to do with uh, uh, poverty for children that, you know, that uh, had been helped by the initial uh, relief package was thrown out the window. But COVID, there, support. COVID. The COVID support. But there was hardly a blink about this uh, uh, $8 trillion, you know, over 10-year defense budget that is uh, reshaping the U.S. economy, bringing home things like uh, chip making, uh, struggle over who's, what is, how the next generation of the internet and all this is going to be done because uh, above all, we got to keep China out of this. The Chinese were way ahead in, in producing uh, 5G, for example. And they're, they're being taken out of that loop because the purpose of the internet more than ever, and part of the, what the war is showing is you got to have smart weapons. I mean, smart weapons are the, are the currency. Now, when capitalism has come into such total crises, mm -hmm. the drift into this other hating and fascism and militarism is threatening all of us. And that's where we have to uh, really show that the absolute of our era under capitalism is absolute destruction, whether it's war or depression or, or climate. And mm -hmm. I think in some ways, the youth like uh, Greta Thunberg and the youth in Africa that are part of the Friday free Fridays for the, the, future. the future movement are way ahead of us. And one of the last things she said was, oh, you know, all political and economic systems have failed us. Only humanity hasn't yet failed us. So it's that kind of sensibility that is emerged, emerging that needs the, a voice and a voice, a philosophic voice. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel as though, um, just on that last point, 
that unfortunately these systems of econ- economics and of politics are human systems. We don't know. We, they seem not to be. We're alienated from them, but we have to take responsibility for them. So, you, you know, if, if things keep going the way they're going, humanity will have failed itself um, and failed to liberate itself. But uh, the, uh, this, the, 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 the problem here uh, is that it's very difficult. In fact, in, in, from a per- particular point of view, it's very, it may be impossible to find the right side to take in this conflict, you know, like the, 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 obviously um, the, the Russian invasion is illegal. Putin's um, a Putin victory and a, a breakup of us hegemony would hardly be some victory for humanity. It would just be the inc- escalation of, of tension and pro- probably violence between the major powers in the world, uh, which would really be um Europe, United States, and China eventually, rather than Russia, but Russia as well. Um, actually, we shouldn't ignore the fact that Russia walked into this uh, war using the threat of tactical nuclear weapons from the outset, and that continues to be in the background. Um, uh, and when the, you know, when when we think about the Ukrainian resistance, it's very difficult for me anyway to, to not think about uh, the Cold War and the and the kind of uh, doomsday scenario that was constantly on the news and in my own mind in the in the 80s where, you know, you had um, there was a, uh, a t- animated cartoon called um, the Winds of War, I think. No, that wasn't what it was called. But it, it was this British cartoon about a, a an older couple surviving a, the first nuclear attack and then slowly dying. Um, and it, the you know, the, the news at the beginning of that comic sort of sounds like the news today. Like it, it, it's it seems to me conceivable that we could be headed for World War Three. That we could actually finally see that doomsday that we were, uh, you know promised in a you know horrible way back uh in the 60s 70s and 80s and uh again that makes me think that we need a peace movement uh an international peace movement to force these all factions to negotiate some sort of withdrawal and settlement um what well, do you think? I wouldn't consider the Ukrainian people a faction in this case. I mean, they're they're fighting they're fighting for their lives to not fall into that uh, abyss that that's the future of all of us, frankly. And um, I wouldn't consider them a faction and their self defense. Well, and their- well, wait, wait, wait. But if 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 Zelensky negotiates a peaceful withdrawal of Russian forces from portions yeah. of Ukraine. And, and allows him to occupy the Donbass re- region, yeah. and that that would not that that means the majority of Ukrainians would no longer have to fight for their lives. And there are factions here, in so much as like there's the yeah. Ukrainian government and there's the Russian government. There 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 are military forces. There are arms right. coming from from NATO and, and Europe. I mean, these these power bases exist, and the people are caught in the middle. And yeah, they're fighting for their lives. But if they was a peaceful negotiation negotiation between the factions, they wouldn't have to fight. At least that's the idea. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But how um, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around what you're saying, because when Ukraine gave up their nuclear weapons, Russia guaranteed that they would not attack Ukraine. They took Ukraine uh, surrendered their nuclear weapons precisely to avoid a nuclear war and were guaranteed that their sovereignty would be uh, protected. And of yeah, course, but you, these, you can never, broken. there's no guarantees. So, so how right. could you possibly believe that any peace negotiation that would say Russia can then take Donbass and then the rest of us are going to go about our lives, that's a complete non sequitur. That it's already proven that this is not going to hold up. 
first of all, Russia has no intention of giving up their territorial uh, um, claim to all of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So that that Putin in some ways sure. is not yeah Putin that's a non-starter, but even if somehow Russia was forced into signing such a treaty, it would be just like U.S.'s treaties with Native Americans. They're not worth the paper they're written on. <sighs> so, so what? what you're saying is that only recourse then is to defeat the Russians militarily and risk. Uh, uh, you know the, the 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 escalation of the conflict into uh, a nuclear exchange, which Russia has said that he's you know Putin has said he's willing to do that as part of their military strategy. The use of small scale nuclear weapons, which if used, would certainly unleash retaliation. So, while so there is no way under bourgeois society with Russian with Putin in in place for there be for there to be a peaceful withdrawal and a negotiated settlement. Well, I, I, I it's it's up to uh, um, the Ukrainians. I mean, if if Zelensky do, really plays it according to uh, what he's saying, and if and if they vote for something like that, I doubt that they that, that they will. I mean, the 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 genocidal propaganda coming out of Russia now. That uh, th- and after after w- all the revelations of, of uh, the, the the mass murders that in the in the suburbs around Ukraine and and Putin calling them war heroes, the people who carried these things out, and the wholesale um, just the turning Mariupol into rubble and and all these different towns. That one after another, seeing what happened, uh, it's just a, a manifestation of his uh, of this total uh, genocidal ideology that is um, he's wreaking on the Ukrainians. And if if they agree to to something like Finland agreed to uh, the Finlandization when they defeated Stalin's Russia, you know that. That would be okay. I mean, the Ukrainians have already said that we don't necessarily want to join NATO. We just want to have a guarantee for our own self-defense, our own defense of our country, and our own ability to defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not saying this wholesale against that. But I think that that what Marxists need to say in this moment is that uh, the opposite of this permanent war which we're involved in right now and one one form of war or another is permanent revolution it's it's seeing the the development of the self organization of masses and their own defense and their own uh capacity to to organize their lives together and against this as something that is the determinant not just for a bourgeois state, but for everyday life, you know, Marx's revolution and permanence is being lost in all this. His idea mm-hmm. that freedom and democracy cannot just stop at the bourgeois state; it has to deepen and become part, inextricably, part of everyday life activity. And his concept of freedom, which begins from the capacity to make an object out of and freely determine that life activity. That's, that's his concept of labor that is not labor in any narrow sense that uh, usually the left gloms onto, but is labor in the sense of human life activity that is multidimensional from the start and is uh, um, an opening to the new. And our age of absolutes demands that kind of opening to a new sense of reality, a sense that we're part of nature and it's and it's nature speaking for itself when humanity isn't alienated from its own social life processes um the uh okay i have a question about nato and then i wanted to show you have you ever watched um Zelensky's television program servant of the people 
Uh, yeah. We tried. Uh, after, really hard. After the thing happened, it, it was on Netflix, and we tried ro- watching it, but it was so painful to watch it, you know, because of uh, the news every day. The news every day, you know. I. Um, oh. Yeah, you were going to make a point about it. I was, okay, I was going to, okay. My first question, though, before we get to watch, I want to show you guys the opening of the Servant of the People. Um, and then ask a question about how we should feel about Ukraine uh, as a as a place where there would be conditions for uh, the development of a socialist politics, as a, a, a realm where there was where freedom might have been opening up, um, uh, where there might have been a, a, a change for the better, um, and so. But to start with, though. Regarding NATO, for me, for my very, you know, uh, maybe provincial U.S. centric perspective, the big question right now is why the hell did Russia never join NATO? Well, how did we allow the conflict between Europe, the United States and Russia to continue after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War? Why is it? That that there should be uh, uh, enough of a, a difference in outlook and interests between the Russian state, not the Russian people, but the Russian state and the European states, that this could erupt into to violence and and to you know the threat of nuclear exchanges and all of that, when there is no ideological difference, we're all supposed to be playing the same game of trade buy and sell trade develop why why is this happening why why did russia not uh get on board the you know the the militarized united nations called nato and um what do you think the answer to that is why wasn't why weren't they allowed in either i mean it's not just that russia didn't russia wanted in at times and so yeah, what do well, you think? I, I think this uh, militarized state capitalism has a, a life of its own. Like I don't know if you remember when uh, Gorbachev uh, uh, met with uh, Reagan in um, Iceland, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think what, it was either Gorbachev or Reagan said, well, let's get rid of all these weapons. And Reagan said, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. But, you know, it, it was pulled back immediately. <laughs> you know, these are too precious. <laughs> mm. This uh, military, military uh, what's been called military-industrial complex, is, is so much a part and parcel of American capitalism that, mm. uh, no, you can't, you can't do that. That's the, the, the guardian of preserving capital relations. As it mm. still is, that's a, a American state capitalism was grounded on, you know, beginning out of the the, the Cold War was uh, on this tremendous expansion, military expansion that then the Russians had to create their own bomb after the U.S. was the only one to have the bomb. And that's the ultimate currency. And the, the moment that Gorbachev was offering, <laughs> let's get rid of it all. Uh, or I th- it was either Gorbachev or Reagan. I can't remember. The, hmm. You know the 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 leaders that be. You know, uh, pulled immediately pulled back from any such notion that this is not going to happen. We're not going to get rid of nuclear weapons. And the other answer is that there is no alliance of bourgeois nations that is possibly a solution. Even if there was a UN that encompassed absolutely everybody, uh, it's a thief's kitchen. Um, uh, Hussein was U.S.'s creation. And when it was expedient for U.S. to turn against him, they did. Noriega was U.S.'s creation. There were no differences. And when it was expedient for U.S. to turn against him, they did. So none of these um, pacts, none of these uh, peace promises is worth anything. From where I'm sitting, they're going, they're going to turn against each other at one point, and there is no saying who is going to stab whom in the back first. 
Yeah, that's one of the things I take up in the article is that this moment is a changed world. And I think everyone grasped that. That and it's but it's a changed world in two senses. One is that the Ukrainians are telling the world you don't have to fall into this abyss. Mm-hmm. And the other is a changed world of alliances. And we don't know, you know, what, who's going to fall on what side. Even NATO, even uh, Western Europe today is uh, still has very deep uh, differences. You know, the the, um, the guy in Hungary, with Or- Orban, <laughs> he still doesn't want to give up the Russian oil, and uh, he's he's uh, he, he's backing away from his um, initial, you know, uh, s- support of all this. You know. Russian tanks coming in to crush a, a a population and uprising is just too powerful an image in in Hungary. I can assure you of that. Mm-hmm. But what what it shows me is that it's part of global capitalism and crisis that there's all these different alliances and different shakeups that that happened in the in the build up to World War II. Like we started up talking about the Hitler-Stalin pact and you don't know until the shooting starts who's going to betray who or even after the shooting starts. You know, when when Hitler turned on Stalin, Stalin couldn't believe it. He was shocked. He was shocked. You know, with all the stuff coming out of the archives, he was up in his dacha and they came to visit him and he thought he was... They were going to have his head because he kept saying, "Oh, this will never happen." He had never prepared, you know, for uh, this uh, turn of events. So solid was his uh, concept of uh, an affinity with Hitler, and uh, there was a line that said, uh, "I think uh, uh, there were the generals were saying we have to prepare for that. We have to mobilize the people." And we have to uh, do something about this. And Stalin says, well, who do you think should lead this? And Because he thought he was going to get yeah, yeah. taken to execute it. <laughs> and Rhea says, why you, of course, comrade Stalin. <laughs> the, you know, the first guy they got rid of when Stalin died. But uh, that's, well, that's, that's part of what I think a lot, so many people are living through, if I make uh mm-hmm explicate a little bit that so many pundits and commentaries know that this is uh, such a totally dangerous period. The rate of accumulation has collapsed in a way that uh, like people like Simon Kuznets had discovered, you know, in the buildup to World War II and questioned that everything could go, everything goes bad in this transition because the, the whole structure of the system is built to uh, not have a way out of this collapsed accumulation. And the only thing more dangerous than globalization is deglobalization on a capitalist ground. Mm-hmm. Deglobalization on a capitalist ground means that all these countries are, are turning to narrow nationalism and fascism and other Mm -hmm. hating and militarization. And there's so many pundits, bourgeois pundits that are are reliving this moment, this, this, this kind of uh, uh, moment. And part of what really um, stood out for, I think in Europe was this is, we're back (laughs) to something that we haven't seen since World War II, and the memories mm-hmm. of, of that moment are so uh, are still so much etched in in European history, and they, and you don't know right till the end who's going to be on what side. The, the alliances are up for grabs. The Chinese are hedging their bets after saying we have the the deepest friendship ever. Suddenly, you know they don't know what what exactly they they should do, and a lot of other countries are hedging their bets and. Mm-hmm. There's no well, I, 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 okay, so I want to, I want to respond to everything you just said, um, maybe with what will appear like a non sequitur, but I hope that it isn't ultimately a non sequitur. Um, by showing you this, just the opening segment here of 
Zelensky is servant of the people and then asking a follow up to it. So let's see how it, this works. Um, okay. So here we go. Watch this closely. <laughs> <laughs> Оп, didn't mean to do that. Я люблю свою страну, люблю свою жену, люблю свою собаку. Я всего на свете член, почти что супермен, но редко лезу в драку. Знает весь двор, мой приговор, слуга народа. У меня почти все есть, достоинство и честь, и даже крики браву. Персональный самолет мне выделил народ, а что имею право на животу? Вот тут набьют ату. Слуга народа. So, I don't know if you recognize the um, images that he walks past as he goes to the to his office there uh, in the government. But um, I spent uh, like an hour once slowly going through each part, looking up the images and I, and now I don't remember them all, but it's this progression of history uh, from the kind of the bringing of Christianity to the Ukraine to, uh, to the bringing of trade and then the parliament and then the people of an uprising and then the establishment of the bourgeois state at the end. Right. And, um, and which is he's walking into. And the fact is in Ukraine, they, they're not there yet. They were not even at that level where they had, you know, anything like uh, even formal freedoms, like the freedoms that we enjoy in the, in the United States. And that's what really what Zelensky was ultimately promising to, to be able to establish. Um, so, you know, when when I watched that, I was propagandized for Zelensky, right? I, as, a, as a socialist, I was like, oh, yeah, uh, this is my man. Um, uh, and, and then I looked into the reality, right? And Zelensky was funded by an oligarch even in those days. And Zelensky um, is as torn by multiple interests that have formed uh you know since the 19th century when that bourgeois promise seemed more real than it mm -hmm. does now and um and uh and and one of those influences on the the the, the project of creating the ukrainian bourgeois state it was the west was the united states and nato and the way that uh those interests I think uh, brought Ukraine into a conflict that really had nothing to do with the Ukrainian people. Ultimately, mm -hmm. I mean, you pointed out in your article that Zelensky is Jewish and that his native <laughs> language is Russian. The 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 idea that Ukraine is about uh, some distinct ethnicity from the Russian people is is wrongheaded. There's a place called Ukraine. They speak Russian, they speak Ukrainian, they have their own society. Um, and, uh, and so it's very sad, first of all, for me to see this happening, um, just in terms of the Ukrainian project. But for, for us, living in the United States, living in Europe, living, you know, who, know, who knows where in the world where there are more uh, formal freedoms, don't, aren't we tasked, or isn't it us that we're really tasked with leading some sort of socialist change, rather than the Ukrainians, who, after all, are had not even had not even arrived uh, at the bourgeois revolution yet? So, have you um, heard any of the statements from Ukrainian leftists? 
No, tell me what they to say. Well, what, say to, they, what would they, they say in response to that question? What they say is, uh, yes, we need to defeat Russians, and we are joining the resistance to defeat this invasion. But mm. should we win, and we fight to win, should we win, we're never going to settle for Zelensky and the kind of state he represents. That's not what we're fighting for. We're fighting against the invasion. And we're with whoever is fighting with us, including Zelensky and NATO and whoever. But when we want to establish the society we want to establish, it's not going to be a bourgeois state. And they have a very depending on who you read, there are several different statements, but they have a vision of a genuinely socialist Ukraine um, to be established after the war. They're laughing, absolutely laughing at Zelensky's um, promise that after the war, he's going to provide housing for government workers. Mm. And they're saying, what is that? Everyone deserves housing. Everyone has to be housed. It's not what just about, government. How about the right to form a socialist party in Ukraine, which he's taken away recently? Right. So Ukraine, the Ukrainian left itself is not going to be happy with Zelensky and the kind of uh, society that he represents. Mm-hmm. And my own, my own view is that if there is a victory, the victory would be so clearly not the victory of of the state machinery, but it'd be the victory of of the solidarity, social solidarity of the U- mass of, U- of Ukrainians, that it will have some kind of implications about the future and decisions about the future that go beyond the, you know, the oligarchs, are, they're all out of the country and they're saving their ass, you know, but uh, there's going to be a, there, there certainly will be this, the same, um, political, economic uh, uh, compulsion from the West to develop in a certain way. But uh, I, I think it, that that's, that's where the whole philosophy of revolution and permanence comes. And I agree with you that our responsibility is to try to work, fight here, fight everywhere, fight on all these grounds as we express our solidarity with with Ukrainians and the new kind of opening that they might create for for uh, for everyone. Um, well, final final question: When it comes to you asked earlier, how can we trust Putin? How can we trust the Russian state to be true to its word in a peaceful negotiation? Um, uh, and you know the 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 the, the treaties wouldn't be worth the paper they were signed on. You know, basically, was your sentiment and. I guess the only answer to, to that would be the the it would be pressure from a more organized Russian people that would keep Putin in line and from a United States and European left and Ukrainian left that to could could bring a force together for the, so that there would be consequences uh for, for these politicians and for these for this bourgeois states, if they weren't able to hold on to peace, um, that the idea that that the people of the world should have to be put in ex, at existential risk because of the conflicts between these, you know, the oligarchs and banks and you know politicians, um, is just unacceptable. And if we could organize on that basis, um, perhaps we could enforce a, a peaceful negotiated settlement and get some formal freedoms in Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, I don't think we know the end of what's going to happen within Russia itself and the depth of the uh, disaffection within the army itself. Um, uh, the, the fog of war, it's hard to get these stories out, but when I read uh, a lot of the accounts uh, Daily Kos has has uh, somehow they put together so many different um, accounts of these different incidences and uh, and activities. You you see such a um, a sense among the Russian soldiers they don't want to be there, and 
some of them are even turning over their tanks to the Ukrainians. And the ones that that do stay and that do commit these atrocities are 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 just are so um, become so inhuman. But the the ordinary Russian soldiers don't want to be there, and the truth of the war is is coming home, and we don't know what kind of impact that's going to have. Um, it's mm. it's kind of on the level of uh, the depth of opposition to the Vietnam War, which was much more open here because we we didn't have a a totalitarian state that would put you in jail for fifteen years for calling it a a war, which. Yeah. Yet, <laughs> but uh, the, we don't know what's going to come of this. We don't know what ramifications are going to come out of this. And it's the, the point is to to support the two worlds in every country, support that world that is fighting for freedom in their everyday life and striving for a way out of this uh, total uh, existential crisis. That's the... That's the word of the last decade. Everything's an existential crisis. Our democracy is an existential crisis. The planet is in an existential crisis. And it's all true. And it just means that the totality of capitalism is threatening humanity. And all life. And all life. And um, that's why uh, 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 the Marxist philosophic perspective is so precious for this moment. Yeah. Listen, we've been talking for about an hour and five minutes. I want to take a break. It was longer than the 45 minutes I, I oh. said we'd talk for. <laughs> well, I want to take a break and go get well, some coffee. Did. No, it's fine. It's not your, it's not your fault. Um, it has been a great conversation. Um, I'm going to, uh, so I'm just going to end this, this stream on Twitch. When I send you another link, I'm going to get some coffee. When I get my coffee and I send you another link, it will just be, uh, for a video that we will release only for patrons later. And what I want to talk about with you on the second stream is just what, if we can think in a practical terms for a minute, uh, what it would look like to have the kind of international socialist politics that would be necessary to truly intervene in a moment like this one. Um, and, and, and what do you think we should be building um, along those lines. Um, and so that's what we'll talk about in, for patrons. For the inside vanguardist cell that, <laughs> that, that, that I'm creating. All right.